if you were a rebel, you had tattoos and mm-hmm. piercings. Yeah. And now it's like just a man with his wife and child. Counterculturally. Yeah, it's counterculturally. <laughs> yeah. Just like, oh, yeah, I'm just married. Um, so I was catching up on my Joe Rogan podcasts, um, and I listened to the uh, Seth Dillon episode. Um, he's the CEO of Babylon B. Um, and I just have a bunch of clips I want to play for you guys and get some of your thoughts. Um, I know I've been sharing this with you over the last week um, just to kind of flesh out some ideas, but uh, I think it would be a good idea to to play these and kind of comment on them. Yeah. Um, the first one is a clip where he's talking about um, how overprotecting does more harm than good. And I think it ties like really well into just kind of our conversation that we've been having about parenting and such, mm-hmm. um, coddling of the American mind, um, things like that. Let me see if I could play this clip. It's a slippery slope. I'm just speaking in general terms about this idea that like doing everything that you can in your power to moderate speech to keep people safe from ideas or jokes that might hurt them is not necessarily helping them. In right. fact, I think it can be harmful. And what I was, I was going to mention a study that was done at the, by this nonprofit group in New York. And they were taking a look at the playgrounds in New York. And they were studying like whether or not – they were trying to answer the question whether or not the playgrounds had been made too safe. And they actually determined that they had. It was this weird thing. Like all these, make, all these playgrounds had been like redone so that they had really cushy, soft flooring. And you couldn't really fall from any heights or get hurt on these playgrounds. And what they found was that it was actually teaching kids that like falling on the ground doesn't hurt you. And like that doesn't help kids. You know, they learn on the playground that they don't get hurt when they fall, and then they go climb a tree over a sidewalk and, and fall, and it does hurt, and it shocks them, and, they, and they're learning the hard way. You know, now they got a broken arm. I think that some of the efforts, it's one of these things that's just like a self-defeating thing. You know, you try to create a safe space, a safe environment. In some cases, I think you actually do more harm because you're, you're protecting. Thoughts. This definitely makes me think of... Jonathan Haidt in Coddling of the American Mind, where he goes through uh, kind of three different ideas of fragile. And he talks about how there's fragile, and that's something uh, like a teacup. That's something that breaks very easily. Then there's things that are resilient. And you think of plastic cups that um, can actually get beaten, and being beaten doesn't really help the cup, but it can handle it. And then there's something he says that is anti-fragile. And he says, anti-fragile things are your bones, your muscles, and children. There are things that actually have stressors and challenges, um, but like your immune system, need those in order to grow. Mm. And I think as a society and as a culture, we're forgetting that children are actually in that anti-fragile stage where they right. can take some of these stressors and they can take some of these challenges and they grow from them. But if you remove those challenges then things start to change and then they don't learn and they don't grow. Right. Right. I immediately thought of um, like an athlete does harm to himself in a sense to be better at the sport that he's training for. Right. And so, you know, when you're lifting, you're actually tearing your muscles, right? You're in a certain sense, you're putting your body in danger uh, or risk uh, in order to grow. Right. And so I think we see that, physically with the athlete, but we also see that um, on a philosophical level or an educational level 
where, you know, I'm reminded of um, Peterson's famous quote with Kathy Newman, uh, in order to think you have to risk being offensive. Yeah. So putting mm-hmm. yourself in a position of risk. Uh, and, and I think that that goes down all the way through human nature, like entirely. So the athlete physically, um, the mind um, a, a, on a philosophical level, um, to think, uh, to risk being offensive. And then even spiritually, <clears throat> I remember Peterson had a podcast a while back with uh, Bishop Barron, and his biggest challenge to Bishop Barron, uh, to uh, members of the church, was to uh, demand more of them, right? Mm. And I think that, that the opposite of that was just coddling, uh, to use the Jonathan Haidt term, uh, coddling the Christian community and saying, you're, you're good as you are, yeah. right? Don't push beyond what you need to push. Uh, not go, you know, you don't, you don't, don't be safe in your spirituality, um, uh, or be safe in your spirituality rather. So this idea that um, to challenge people, saying like, go beyond, right? Um, stretch the limits of your discipline, your spiritual practices, uh, even if it's uncomfortable, right? Take that risk to grow in your faith. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I thought of like just hearing that clip. I heard, I thought of Peterson. I thought of the uh, athlete analogy, mm-hmm. uh, and even uh, on a spiritual level. That we have to take risks in order to grow. We have to on yeah. every level of human nature. The um, it's really interesting to think about, like, because his his whole point was really about what you were talking about, how uh, challenging your mind. You have to like risk being offensive. You have to like risk feeling uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking about how it really comes down to an understanding of reality, and that like you can't avoid these things. Mm-hmm. Um, like life presents itself with challenges mm-hmm. uh, and the there's really no utopian world where you're never challenged. And so the best thing yeah. you can do is prepare yourself for that. So like uh, Jonathan Haidt <clears throat> has that saying, um, prepare the child for the road and don't prepare the road for the child. Right, yeah. right. Uh, which is literally in that clip, yeah. they're doing that. They're preparing the road oh, yeah, <laughs> for the child. Yeah, like, exactly. you know, right. They're yeah. actually yeah. making the road like yeah. squishy and comfortable <laughs> Yep. So the child doesn't get hurt. Right, right. Yeah, the, gr- the ground. Yeah. yeah. And you could, I mean, you could live like that, but you would be living in a perpetual state of childness, right? Yeah. And, and like, I'm, I'm reminded of that, remember that scene in The Passion of the Christ where the, um, while the scourging is going on, uh, you, you have this juxtaposition of Mary and um, the devil. Mm-hmm. And the devil's holding this, like, odd man child thing. <laughs> it's kind of a frightening, repulsive image. But it's, it speaks to, like, the mother who is keeping her child safe. And that's what he's going to look like when he grows up, if that's the way he lives. And then on the opposite side of that, you have Mary letting her son be free. I've talked about this, like, three or four times. But mm-hmm. letting her son be free, undergoing immense suffering. But it's only through that suffering and through that danger that he then opens himself up for eternal life. Right? That's, that leads to the resurrection. Yeah, uh, Peterson has that um, line in his biblical lectures. He talks about like there's nothing uglier than an adult child. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you could you could do it. Uh, a parent could, uh, through their best efforts, prolong a child's life biologically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but what does that say about the quality of his life? Yeah. And so that's that's actually vitalism, um, which John Paul II um, fought vehement, vehemently against. Uh, the idea that like we should just preserve 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 
um, a person's uh, days as long as possible instead of actually caring for their the quality of that person's life. Um, so it is possible, right. but yeah, you end up with something. Ultimately, ugly. it's not. Eventually, you lose grasp because the child eventually has to go out. Yeah, I mean, you could you could keep the kid until he dies. But usually these things look like parents that coddle their children for years and years and years. And they're like, you know, mid thirties, early forties and like, haven't really developed that character. Yeah. Um, the, the problem with that is that like, you know, reality is eventually going to bite back. And mm -hmm. I feel like you're kind of seeing that now in the culture where you're seeing all these, like the, the entire culture being coddled and then now having to be put into reality and they're getting triggered by things and, and yeah. we're having to cancel people and, and reduce speech because all of that's offensive. And yeah, it's like not it, safe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it yeah. really comes from, it's, it's really interesting because you can see the pattern um, starting from fear, right? Like I don't want my child to experience pain mm -hmm. and there, there's a, there's a genuine compassion there of like, I care for my child, a misunderstanding of the human person. Yeah. Eventually you can't do that. You can't do that to the end because the reality is going to show up. Yeah. And so the only thing you really have to do after that, the only thing you can do is to enforce power. Yeah. So it's, mm -hmm. it's fear that turns into a clasping, yeah. you know, like you, you have to be locked up in a tower right. forever and, and there has to now be pressure um, and rules and like very strict impositions in order to stop the outside from yeah. coming in. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan Haidt actually talks about that in Kylie the American Mind as well, is the 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 problem with the decline of play uh, among children, free play, is that with free play, children learn how to negotiate, they learn how to, to associate with one another, conflict resolution, um, developing rules and structure. And he said, with the decline of that, though, is the decline of all those abilities. So mm. when a problem arises, where do you appeal? And you appeal immediately to authority. Mm to resolve this conflict. Right. You immediately appeal to power. So this is uh, yeah. a segment of cancel culture, um, Twitter, you know, I can't believe this person is saying this thing. Like, where is the, where's Twitter to shut mm. this guy down? Right. You know, it's an immediate appeal to power. Um, and not, I mean, now Twitter's not a great example because that's not face-to-face -face interaction. Yeah. And it's a little bit different, yeah. but you're right. It is, it's not an appeal to any sort of negotiation, but immediately power and that's, the that's involved. really interesting because like to use the playing analogy when kids are when there's a conflict the easiest thing for the child to do is to run to its mother and say mom he's bothering me right or mom right. this isn't fair and so there, there's this appeal like you said an appeal to power where the child is actually not growing in that instance right uh instead right. of actually taking responsibility and saying okay can we figure this out you know, together, yep. um, instead of just getting now, now, you know, it, it might be necessary to get the parents involved at, at some point, but I think in our culture, um, you know, using, um, pointing, pointing to what the analogy points to, uh, to always appeal to authority is to actually not use the faculties that you've been given, <laughs> right? right? Like reason, uh, you know, uh, negotiation, communication, uh, like, you've been given these faculties, like use them, right? Uh, it, it's like having a, a sports car and never driving it. Sure. Well, I think, yeah, I think that um, in, in an appeal to power, we lose something of ourselves. Uh, yeah, I was going to say that, you know, if you think about when you were a kid and you were playing a game and that one kid didn't get his way and immediately went to the teacher, went to the parent, and then the parent yeah. got involved and changed the rules of the game, 
it was incredibly annoying and frustrating. Yeah, yeah. It was like we, we had a game going on here, and now it's now this authority and this powers come in and yeah. said no more game. Yeah. Or these are the rules now. And it, it's, it, it destroys it, the fun for everyone. Right. It destroys <laughs> yeah. the fun for everybody. Like now, as you said, you don't actually get to use your own faculties to construct this thing. Yeah. Now there's like an imposition yeah, of exactly. how the game is going to be played. Exactly. Right. Yeah. There's a, um, a, I mean, that kind of speaks to the role of the parent too. It's like when, when a child does appeal to you being like, this is happening to me, you have to know where to uh, show compassion and then show, like encourage them to be like, well, do something about it. Yeah. Um, right. Right. Yeah. Because, you know, as Jonathan, as Father Father John said, there are times where it might be necessary. Yeah. But not every single time, which right. I feel like now it's every single time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, but like that takes a really discerning mind on when to actually get the authority involved versus when people can figure it out on their own. Uh, and that's like a sense of wisdom. And it's, I think it's difficult to actually discern that. Uh, yeah, so... Yes, yeah, so similar um, on that thread um, in terms of like knowing how to respond. Um, there's a, I was listening to another Rogan episode um, with Chris Williamson. He has his own podcast, um, Modern Wisdom, I think it's called. Um, and he has a clip I wanted to play for you guys that's kind of related to this in terms of, uh, you know, responding to external realities, whether they're negative. Um, you never have a nice house because I can't, I can't afford one. It's no, it's no different. So there's this concept called the inner citadel by Isaiah Berlin. And what he says is, when the world outside of us has denied that which we truly want, we retreat into ourselves, into mm-hmm. a kind of walled-off garden to protect ourselves from the fearful ills of the world. My buddy gave a, a, a great example of this where he said, you can imagine that you've injured your leg, right? And you can try to treat the leg, but if you can't, then you chop the leg off and announce that the desire for legs is misguided and must be subdued. <laughs> and you see this... So I thought that was really interesting in this conversation of kind of what happens when you retreat into the inner citadel and like you live in a, in a um, society that prioritizes safety. Mm. Um, so you have people that are unwilling or unable to engage with the world and its conflicts, but then you also have as a side effect, bitterness that starts and yeah. resentment that starts to, to happen. Um, he, he's, he says a quote that um, I wasn't in the clip, but he says, if you can get, if you can't get what you want, then you convince yourself to want what you can get. Yeah. And so you start seeing people develop these worldviews of like, well, actually that stuff is bad. Yeah. Um, and start to create an otherness in, in order to reinforce why you should stay safe and unharmed. Yeah. I think it's interesting because that, that leg analogy is really good because on the one hand, you're making a logical progression through, okay, I can treat it the way that it should be treated or I can chop it off. But then he makes the jump to say, now the desire for legs is misguided, Mm -hmm. which is now like a a public statement, uh, not just concerning himself, but everyone. But I think that that, that's that's natural. Um, I think we see that with a lot of um, Christians. uh, Their lives, if they're living, they're trying to live good Christian lives, is kind of a testament against people who are not living those lives. And so we see bitterness from people who are not living uh, a faithful life towards people who are. And we see that in Scripture, right? Like the the prophets, um, the people that, you know, when they go out to preach to the people, if the people don't accept them, they hate them. It's not just uh, ignoring them. It's this um, declaration of that kind of life is abhorrent to me. 
um, Christ himself with, you know, the Pharisees, like they had to silence him. It wasn't enough just to ignore him, but it's, it's because it's a judgment on the way that they live. Uh, and so, yeah, that it, it seems like a, an odd jump at first saying like, okay, you just chop off your leg, but then now why are you, why are you imposing this worldview on everyone? Yeah. Right. It's, it's like one more layer of, um, kind of a coddling, you know, like you, you can't live with yourself knowing that other people yeah. want legs. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have to build a narrative in that, like, actually that's bad. Yeah. And therefore I have nothing to reconcile. Right, right. Right, right. So you're kind of getting everyone on board with the same thought and mentality that this is this is what everyone should want. Everyone yeah. um, should want this level of safety or, you know, should want what I want. <laughs> yeah. In a sense. Yeah, exactly. You know, if I only want one leg, then everyone should want one leg. Yeah. And any sort of difference is a threat to my way of life. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, that, that other people live differently than me is a, is kind of uh, concerning. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, even seeing that, I mean, um, there's, there's that idea that like there are two ways to have the tallest building in the city. Um, you either actually build the tallest building or you knock everyone else's down. Yeah. Um, and so like this idea that, you know, if you don't have the capacity to engage with the world because you've been coddled, um, you do, there is an option to just go full bitterness and like full cane and yeah. to knock everybody else down so that you seem superior. Right. And I think that that's, that speaks to um, a knowledge of self in a sense, because not everyone can build the tallest building, right? Some people don't have that capacity or that talent, that natural aptitude. And so to be at peace with who you are, right? We've all been given, but by being born, by the fact of being born, we've all been given life on life's terms. And some of us are tall, some of us are short, some of us are um, good at sports, you know, others are good at speaking well, uh, but that's not for us to decide, right? And so to be at peace, being receptive to life, again, on life's terms, instead of saying, well, you know, I, I'm... I was born short, but I, I, you know, I want to be the best at basketball and you can try and be good at it, but you're never going to be the best, right? If you're born a certain way, uh, or if you've received life on life's terms again. So that idea that yes, you can, you know, try and build the tallest building, but if you're not given that aptitude, you have to be at peace with that. Right. And, and again, that goes, uh, that goes back to the idea of receiving versus taking for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so being receptive to life and, and being at peace with who you are and what you can do. So Yeah, I think about that in my own experience um, as a musician. A lot of times uh, people in the music industry, if they're like not quite in, uh, like signed to a label or they're not part of big music per se, they, they have kind of a bitterness about it and say like, oh, it's a rigged system and this, that, and the third. And some of the critiques are true, um, but a lot of it comes from that kind of like... I, I think the desire to be in big music is misguided because I'm not there. Yeah. Um, and it kind of, it comes from that same idea that Chris Williamson was talking about. Um, and I mean, for myself, it was really just, um, I just saw it as like, this is a waste of my time to be thinking this way. Like I, these are the cards dealt. Um, labels aren't picking me up. I need to provide for my family. What can I do with music? And then that turned into, um, you know, starting selling commercial music and eventually starting my own uh, commercial music site. Um, 
But all of that was from a response of like, I, it's a waste of time to be bitter about this. Mm -hmm. What can I do with what I'm given? And that kind of Peterson, like clean your room, like do the next good thing, see what happens. Like everything else was a waste of time for me. And it, Mm -hmm. I mean, it turned out to my favor and like to the point where I'm, I've been reached, like labels have reached out now at this point and I've said no, because what I've built is better. Like I I like the system I built. Um, And that's just kind of coming from a response of like, I, I could be bitter about this. I could like, you know, go on the forums and, and rip big labels to shreds with everybody else and be bitter about it. But that, like, what does that do? It waste time. It's just a waste yeah. of time. Right. It'll, it'll just eat you alive. Yeah. Is what resentment and bitterness does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't like do any dings to the big system anyway. Like no. it's not like, right. It's not like you're making progress in like trying to change what you're bitter about. It's just, you're just making yeah. your life worse. What, what are you accomplishing uh, in your resentment? Yeah. Um, I mean, the worst resentment, you, you see that, like, can enable dynamic to where instead of building up, uh, you, you let your resentment tear down. And so you can actually give your life over to destruction, right, and through your resentment. And that could be your legacy. Yeah. Uh, but that's, that's like, the, wor- that's the right. worst case scenario. Right, so. right. That's what um, Nietzsche conceived of the man, the man of resentment as not necessarily, or, you know, or group resentment. Um, as people who do not know how to create their own values, but only know how to destroy and subvert existing values. So, you know, glory, pride, honor, these are existing values in Rome, as he conceived of it. And then, you know, the the, um, resentful Jewish population subverted those. They didn't necessarily create new values. They just subverted the Mm. existing ones. So it's the same way as um, I think, you know, Nietzsche would agree that, you don't create anything new. Resentment is not creative. It's only destructive. Right. Yeah. Exactly. It only you subverts. S- you see that bleeding into yeah. like every form of critical theory. Correct. Um, right. And yeah. that like your only theory is that this is bad. Right. Yeah. And like these are the systems that are oppressing and there's no real solution other than just right. critiquing the current, the frame. Right. Right. When I was reading Nietzsche yeah. on resentment, that's exactly what I thought of is like in this kind of current moment, people aren't creating new values. They're just saying that the existing ones are wrong and right. need to be destroyed and, and torn mm-hmm. down. And, and it's always fascinated me when people um, get on these rants uh, where they're criticizing um, traditional or conservative values. It's like, well, what's your proposition? Like, are you right. proposing something better? Uh, what good does it do to tear down something without having an answer? It, there's no good in that. There's, it's, again, it's just, it's just tearing down. That's going to be your legacy instead of actually building something better. So. Yeah. Right. I, I think, gosh, there was a, a politician, I think, who, who said something like this. Well, I, I, know, um, I know of one example. They said, you know, we have to pass this package to find out what's in it. Um, <laughs> and so uh, with, with, with kind of in the same kind of vein, it's, it's, it's like, well, what do we do once we've destroyed the existing value structure? It's like, well, we'll find out. Right. Once we destroy it, yeah, you know, yeah. we'll, right, like right. W- once we're in the rubble, we'll figure out what to do then. <laughs> yes, and that's yeah, not the way that to is go. A, that is a dangerous philosophy. I think it was Peter Kreeft who um, he brought something. He brought this up in, in one of his talks, and he said like, people who who say let's just tear this down. I don't even know what good it's doing. That's like going up to a fence in a field and saying, "Why is this fence here? Like it doesn't make any sense. Tear it down." And once they tear it down, there's a raging bull on the other side. It's right. like, if you don't even know why these institutions are in place, 
you better find out why they are before you want to take it down. Right, right. Which I, I do think we've forgotten that, though. This whole, like, yes. shadow of God, the setting sun, mm-hmm. um, living off kind of the dying body of Christianity. We don't really know why we have them in the first place. Right. So now we're beginning to tear them down. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, also, you, yeah it's, a, it's a misunderstanding of, like, where these things came from and who the human person is. Because if you, if you only see man as a economic person, mm-hmm. then something like Marxism kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. But that's not how this works. So it's like when you look at capitalism, like we should tear this down. It's like, okay, but your perception about who people are is misguided. Yeah. And that's why you want to tear this down. So it's, yeah, it's like you were saying, it's like we're, we're losing the foundation of even the ability to grasp at where these things came from. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We, we've right. taken, I think, the philosophical, religious underpinnings of Western culture for granted. Uh, Peterson yeah. made this point with free speech. He's like, you know, everyone kind of just said, oh, of course free speech is a right, and of course it's a good thing. I said, well, where does it come from? He's like, I don't, I don't really know, but I know it's the right thing. Right. <laughs> um, or I, I know we need it. Yeah. Um, but now it's, we're actually questioning, yep. what is free speech, and is it a right, and is it good? Mm-hmm. And we didn't question it for so long, we're not really sure. Same thing with marriage. It was, what, what do you mean marriage is between a man and a woman? Why is that? And people were kind of scrambling. It's like, well, you know, it's just the way things are. Yeah. And then it was questioned, well, what if it was different? So yeah. same, I think mm-hmm. the same thing here. Um, AOC is famous for this, you know, can we imagine a world different than capitalism? You know, imagine a world where, you know, systems worked in our favor and mm-hmm. it was healthy. Um, and I think people are really latching on to that because so many of these foundational ideas have not been questioned, have not kind of been uh, poked and prodded and worked out in a long time that we just kind of assume they can be changed yeah. Yeah. at will. Then the other um, the other side of that too, which is really interesting on the lines of like, we don't know where these philosophies come from or we don't know the underlying philosophies um, is when people get like triggered that uh, people are saying that critical race theory is being taught in schools. And they're like, well, they're not teaching critical race theory. That's like, you know, high level law theory. Mm-hmm. Like they're not teaching that. It's like, okay, we don't mean that they're teaching the theory as opposed to the ideas that they're teaching come from this theory. Right, right. Like you have to grasp the idea that like free speech is a Christian idea. It's like, I'm, but I'm not Christian. It's, like, it's a Christian idea. Mm-hmm. Like you have yeah. to understand how when, we, when we're talking about where these philosophies come from, the idea that, you know, uh, the, the solution to racism is more racism is a critical race theory idea. It's not, but we're not teaching law to kindergartners, right? You know, that, so that's that's a distinction that I feel like a lot of people don't make and go and go quick to be like, well, I'm not a Marxist. It's like, okay, but your ideas are Marxist. Yeah, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think people just don't know how to think philosophically. Yeah. And so there's another. Cl- uh, this is the second time bringing up that conversation between Jordan Peterson and um, Kathy Newman, but you know they're talking about. Um, transgender ideology and he he equates that ideology to um a a um marxist uh worldview and he brings up uh, maoist china mm. and she's like how is that even comparable but he, he you know his response is excellent he says the, the philosophies that they're uttering are it's the same philosophical uh system same thing um and, and it's and so he's able to see the philosophy uh, on a deeper level, uh, whereas I think most people arguing about like why are these systems in place or mm-hmm. uh, you know uh, 
yeah, I'm not a Marxist, but then they're espousing these ideas and the way they live. Uh, they can't see that level, the undergirding level. And so, and Peterson's point in other lectures too, is like you take these systems away. If you take these systems away, though, everything that stands on top of them will eventually fade. So like you were saying, like, you know, marriage was between a man and a woman. We don't really know why. And now it's being questioned. It's because we've ignored the religious question for so long. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. with those, that, that structure, the scaffolding that held up everything um, has been taken away. And so now the things that we enjoy, like free speech mm-hmm. um, and, and all those, uh, the, the um, equality, right, and, and the dignity of the human person, I can't just float there without a structure, right? right. No, 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 um, nothing can, yeah, nothing can stand uh, suspended and uh, it needs something to be propped up on. This is what you were saying last week about language and um, ideas changing behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it's like, you know, Peterson's point was like, okay, but these ideas eventually become behaviors. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the through line. There's there's really, it's not more complicated than that. It's like, of course, I'm not going to be like Mao. I'm not going to murder millions of people. It's like, okay, but you have the same idea. Yeah. So right. eventually there's going to be a similar outcome. Or so maybe change your idea. Yeah, <laughs> right. This is a quote I'll probably say again and again, but I, I, I love it. It's from Viktor Frankl um, in his book, uh, The Doctor and the Soul. And he said that the gas chambers of Auschwitz were not developed in some ministry in Berlin, you know, not in some lab, but it was developed in the lecture halls and desks of nihilistic philosophers and scientists. Yeah. Mm. Jeez. You know, it's, and it's this idea that you think theory has no consequence. You think philosophy has no consequence. But if you have a nihilistic outlook and you teach people a nihilistic outlook, how do you think they will behave? Yeah, exactly. right. You know, he said, you know, the Nazis' idea was that man is nothing but blood, heredity, and, and environment. Mm-hmm. And they taught that. You know, the nihilistic philosophers have been teaching for years. Yeah. You know, Nietzsche was handed out, apparently, I think, in... Uh, in the trenches in World War One, yeah, you know, it's like when these ideas start kind of permeating, it will change the way you behave. Yeah, um, and I, I love that quote because it's it really shows the importance of philosophy, yeah. and that everyone has one. Yeah. yeah, everyone has some philosophy, some theory that they live by, and it does impact their behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and but the frightening thing is that most people cannot pin down their philosophy, and so they like the ideas that the philosophy espouses. Um, like, you know, Marxism, like, mm-hmm. oh, we should all be equal. And they don't even know what that means. Um, but because they can't pin down the philosophy, they just kind of pick and choose without any uh, unifying factor. And then, you know, if left unchecked, it will go into very dark places. Right. It could go into very dark places. Outside of the lecture halls, um, like you have people, it's like, okay, well, you know, in America, we have a voting system and not everybody is uh has the capacity to study up on their philosophy and so what other structures are in place that completely encapsulate a worldview that guides people to make the right decisions is religion yeah you know so it's like outside of studying the philosophy obviously christianity merges the two you know intellect and and faith um but i feel like it's an important point that even if you can't study where your philosophy came from, you are a living one. Mm-hmm. Um, and and for the common man, religion is the source of where all of your philosophical thinking comes from. Yeah, 
yeah, definitely. Right. Um, Jung thought that the the counterbalance to what he thought to what he called mass mindedness, so kind of collectivist thinking, was religion. Mm. That it was the one thing that separated man out, um, that gave him a higher authority than the state, and could allow him to be um, free from the influence of the state. Mm. And it was it an- it was another source of education, right. as, as to, to your point. Yep. Um, that although religious people may not have philosophical education or religious education or um, or even any education at all. They still, through their kind of weekly or monthly uh, prayers and ritual, could find a way to find a, a meaning in, to life that was apart from the political. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which I don't think is happening now. Right. Obviously. I think right. people's meaning yeah. is the political. Right. Um, yeah, and we we expect these people uh, to vote and to elect people in our government uh, based on what they think is right. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, how do you, are we going to lecture everybody to read up on Marxism or, you know, what have mm-hmm. you? Right. It's like sometimes you can only do that so much where it's like, there are things in place in people's lives that allow for that, you know, obviously um, communities that educate each other, uh, but also things like religion where it's like the, the Christian framework does not allow for something like Marxism to exist because it's antithetical to Christianity. Yeah. So it's like, right. if you're a good Christian, you're not going to want Marxist values. Yeah. By nature. All right. Um, that ties into another clip I wanted to play from this Seth Dillon uh, interview. Um, Rogan talks a little bit about, you know, the idea that conservatives say you got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and he pushes back a little bit on that. Um, and then Seth makes a comment. Um, I wanted to play it for you guys and um, make some points. Erica, wouldn't it be better if we had less losers? <laughs> Right? It would be better for everybody. Well, what's the best way to get less losers? The best way to get less losers is to help people get the fuck out of where they're at. And there's some people that just got a shit roll of the dice. And a lot of conservative people don't want to recognize that. Mm. They don't want to talk about that. They always, there's this narrative, this pull yourself up by your bootstraps. There's people that don't have fucking shoes. There's these people that they got a terrible roll of the dice. And by the time they're working and integrated into a system, they're 18 years old or whatever they are. That's 18 years of a fucked life. Yeah. And that can be fixed. That can be fixed just like we have enough money to send $40 billion to Ukraine and 87,000 new IRS agents. You know what else we have money for? We have money to revitalize cities Mm. that are fucked. And we've never done it. We yeah. we we don't. But should, we but should that be done by the government or privately? And I, I would think that you know, with a lot of conservatives who are often criticized for that mentality that oh yeah, you know, equality is just you know making sure everybody has the same opportunity. Uh, nobody needs a leg up. Um, you know, you, you know, these people should pull them up by their, their bootstraps. I do think that people, generally speaking, um, Christian conservatives are very compassionate and do a lot of charity work. Yes, they do a ton of charity work. Yes. And so they're willing to put their own time volunteering and donating money towards causes that help with those things. You know, you look at like crisis pregnancy centers, for example, which, with, which Elizabeth Warren wants to shut down for some reason. I mean, these are helping women in need and she wants to shut them down. I mean, these are people who are volunteering their time, their resources, their money to help people who are in a tough spot. And it's, it's completely charity. It's kindness. It's love and compassion. But it's always, you know always painted with a brush of, oh, yeah, you know, you're on your own. Uh, we, we only care about children before they're born, not after they're born, you know. But I do. Th- mm. Go. <laughs> <laughs> Green light go. 
Um, well, I, I thought about the beginning of our conversation where, it, you know, the analogy to play and getting the authorities immediately involved instead of actually coming together as a community and saying, like, what can we do to fix the situation, right? And so, you know, g- getting the government involved, yes, you need the government to, um, uh, you know, do certain things, uh, even on a federal level. Um, you know, no one's advocating getting rid of, like, food stamps and stuff like that. But, you know, even even the question of, well, let's make this city better, who, who sets that standard of better? You know, uh, obviously, like, you know, when there's destitution, um, anything's better than that, of course. But, you know, I, I was, you know, wondering at the same time like, when Joe Rogan was saying, uh, you know, people have a, um, uh, you know, they roll the dice and it was a, a bad, bad play. What, what's, what's this idea of better that we're getting at? Uh, and who decides that? That's one, one point. But the other point, um, I think, and Seth Dillon, um, I think he answered well in the sense that we can come together and actually solve this problem. And when it's done by someone who is part of your community, it's so much more impactful than just getting a check from the government, <laughs> right? Uh, so, yeah, I, I think it relates back to that idea of, like, you know, when you're playing as a child and something happens, is your immediate response to go to the mother and to shut down, like, as Lee was saying, is sh- to shut down the fun and change the rules, or can we work this out together and actually move forward in the game that we're playing and still have fun, as it were, you know, so. Right. Yeah, this um, this kind of goes to a, tr- a tricky thing about Christianity is it's a fine line between individualistic and collectivist. Mm-hmm. And it, it also goes to the primordial question of Cain that we brought up earlier is, am I my brother's keeper? And the question is, or the answer to that is yes. Right. In fact, as a Christian, you are your brother's keeper. Now, how do you take care of your brother? Through the Christian conception of charity is, it's something that goes beyond what is commanded and what is obliged by or obligated by strict justice. Mm-hmm. But can you legislate charity? Right. Can you know if you if charity is supposed to be a virtue and it has to be done freely, then you can't demand people be charitable. It's no right? longer charity, at that right? Because yeah. then it's no longer charity. Yeah. So, right. While a failure of charity might be a, a moral problem, it, it's not t- technically a legal problem. However, you know, to Joe Rogan's point, it's like some people don't have shoes. It's like, well, that's where that's where Christian charity is supposed to step in. But that has to be a free will act. Yep. And it, it's very complicated because, you know, even, even then you're not obliged to relieve every distress. Every common right. ill is not to be, is not commanded to be, to be done. Yeah. Um, I think some, you said like Christian Marxists get this a little confused about, um, well, Jesus commands us to take care of the poor. So therefore the government should get involved and take care of the poor. Mm-hmm. But Mama, mama, federal government <laughs> and Jesus are not the same thing. Yeah. You know, Jesus can command a lot of things because yeah. he's God. And so he can get us to take care of the poor. But the federal government, that's a totally different thing. Right. To get them involved is a very different beast. Yeah. 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 It's, it's a human institution in that sense. And I mean, like Thomas Sowell says all the time, there's no solutions, only trade-offs. Um, and so like you have to walk the fine line of knowing, uh, 
what you incentivize when you give handouts, mm-hmm. right? You know, broadly, spree- broadly speaking, um, I, yeah, I, I was immediately struck by the immediate jump to like money is going to fix this. Yeah. But it's like, we're not just an economic person. Yeah. But again, if you only saw it as people as being merely economical, then yes, the solution has to do with money. But the solution doesn't because it has to do with the whole person also being a religious people. Yeah. Ideally, the Christian values will lead people to be charitable. And yeah. then the outlets go to the disenfranchised for that. Obviously, there's corruption in all of that, but that's that's how the system works the best. Yeah. Right. This, I think this goes to um, kind of uh, the Catholic conception of personalism um, that on the individualistic level, kind of capitalistic level, man does produce goods, but man is not reducible to the goods that he pr- produces. Mm-hmm. On the collectivist level, um, and you know, maybe communistic level, he's also part of a whole, but he can't be reduced to just a part of a whole. Yeah. Um, hmm. it, it's, it's uh, a, again, the, the tricky balance that money is a necessity, and he man does need goods, but he's not strictly a good producing, good consuming being. Right. Yeah. And the way that overlaps yeah. with like the correct understanding is that, you know, when, when the right will say, well, we need to clean up the streets so that businesses can come in and have more opportunities for these people. It's like the, the attack becomes like, well, you just think about business all the time and it's all about money for you. It's like, actually that, that fits into the whole framework in that like capitalism is a better system than Marxism Yeah, as, as it reflects reality. And so incentivizing capitalism to come in is a better system than trying to just power grab and um, almost coddle the people yourself. It yeah. seems like the, the government in that sense, um, a lot of these inner cities, a lot of these blue states, uh, blue cities um, have that kind of same coddling mentality where it's like, we can control things if we just do things for you and, and et cetera, et cetera. But it's like, no, you have to acknowledge a reality outside yourself and then participate with that reality as best you can. And something like justice, something like enforcing the law, something like allowing there for capitalism to come in so that people can have opportunities. And then even the people that fall through the cracks because of that, then Christian charity comes and picks those people up. Yeah. We have a, a smaller but still existing safety net that the, that local government can provide. All of that fits into the, the right framework when it's through a Christian lens. I was thinking of, uh, I think it's the Gospel of John, uh, when Mary Magdalene um, uses perfume to clean our Lord's feet. And Judas Iscariot says, which is interesting, I'll maybe tie this in in a second, but uh, there's a note in the gospel where he says that he's a treasurer um, and he was stealing money from the, uh, the treasury. Mm. Uh, but he's the one that says, this perfume could have been used to feed the poor. And I feel like that's a huge, like that's a big response um, from people on the left. Whenever um, there's mass spending, um, or, or like um, uh, you know when uh, Elon Musk uh, offered to buy Twitter, mm-hmm. you know now that that deal might be um, falling apart. But you know back then he offered what was it forty something billion? Um, yeah. And there was a lot of um, anger from the left saying like, why is he spending that money? It could have been used to be you know to, to help the poor. Mm-hmm. But our Lord's response is, the poor will always be with you. And it's this idea that the poor are not 
are not like like you said not economical beings they are people persons meaning that their souls have to be fed as well right and so this is the idea like and, and when the the church gets criticized for having beautiful art and gold and it's like why can't this money be given to the poor that's such a that is kind of a marxist response to that and you know we have to remember that man does not live by bread alone mm-hmm. and that even the gold and the beautiful art in churches and even you know something you know, trickling down if you want to talk about fractals <laughs> uh twitter uh buying twitter um you know to actually create a uh a free space for um you know uh to, to free speech free speech yeah like a public forum that's actually free all those things are necessary to the human condition more than just bread and housing right and so i think it's actually degrading to say whenever whenever um you know a lot of money is being spent and say oh that should be uh, used to feed the poor it's like are you saying the poor are just like animals and they don't need to actually exercise their minds and souls right uh, that that's i think what is implicit whenever we think that money should just be given to the poor or money will fix this problem is that we're not actually um uh you know, we don't have souls, as it were. Right. And and I think it's um, even more to the point. Beautiful art, um, you know, the golden churches, uh, creating uh, you know free public forums, encouraging free speech, all those things actually inspire charity in the Christian soul. And so you actually will end up feeding the poor when you focus on things of the soul first. Yep. Um, and so. Right, it it's not to, it's does not, lead to human flourishing. Those things aren't exclusive. It's not to say, well, you know, it's important to have gold in the church, so we're not going to talk about the poor. It's like, no, 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 of no. Course. It's actually, in a weird way, it's the gold in the church that allows for Christian charity to reach out to the poor. Yeah, like this is the better system to yeah. cooperate with. And the poor has a right to enjoy beautiful things just as much as uh, the the person who's not poor. And so to take these things away and just give them, like, to melt down the gold of the tabernacle and then give it to the poor person in the form of bread is insulting to the poor person, <laughs> right? They need to also enrich their souls. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I yeah. think I, I, when you were playing that clip, I just, I thought of that gospel passage from John. So, you have any thoughts, Lee? So many, so many. <laughs> so many thoughts. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking also about, uh, the principle of subsidiarity mm-hmm. when, it, when it comes to, well, does the government get involved? It's like, well, does the government get involved in every dispute? Right. Yeah. You know, right. Like, like the yeah. family has a right to exercise its own freedom. Yeah. And then so does your commute, your local community and your local government and, and, and all the way up. Mm-hmm. And I think that idea is definitely being lost that the lowest level of, I don't know if it's government because it's not necessarily the government. Like the family is yeah. not the lowest level of government. Uh, sure. Like the lowest like social entity. Community. Community, yes. Yeah. Um, has the right to exercise their own freedoms and responsibilities and governance to take care of each other. And then if it's a larger issue, then take care of that. Yeah. You know, national security, making sure that missiles from... North Korea, don't hit us, you yeah, know, all that. Like, right. well, of course, of course the government, yeah. you know, needs to maintain yeah. an army and, and such like that. But does it need to get involved in the family and the like little right. minutia of life? Right. It's like, I, I don't think so. I think that's a, you know, a grave violation yeah. of, uh, of yeah. individual rights and freedom. I and mean, we just kind of saw this with Roe v. Wade, even, you know, that the idea that 
the government or the, the nation might not be unified under one single law. And there might mm -hmm. be different laws around the country. Yeah. Like that's, whoa, whoa, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> wait a right. second, wait a second. Yeah. Um, but that's totally fine. Yeah. 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 I, I also have so many circling thoughts around that. Um, but I, I do want to move on um, to another clip that's a little bit heavier um, where Rogan uh, is talking to Seth Dillon about abortion and then uses, you know, kind of the, the common trope of like, you can't tell a 14-year-old child to carry her rapist baby. Um, a very compelling argument, um, and I just I want to play the clip for you guys and then hear your thoughts. There's also women who have been raped who should not have to fucking carry some rapist baby. There's women who have been sexually assaulted before the age of 14. There's also, hold on though. But hold on, there's don't also, stop me. Okay. You, that's real too. There's and we all have to agree. We have to agree on both of those things. There are also, though, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to argue with you on that point, but I will say there are people who have been born of rape and are alive right now and are pro-life. And they go around speaking, talking That's about how great. I had a right to live. And they, and they will go out there and make an argument, a pro-life case. And they're, a rape, they're the, a born of a rape. You don't have a right to tell a 14-year-old girl she has to carry a rapist baby. I'm you just saying just that. I'm just saying that's real, too. Saying? Yeah, I understand what, I understand you, what you're saying. Do you saying understand with, what I'm saying? Like, you don't have the right to tell my 14-year-old daughter she has to carry her rapist baby. You understand to that? To look that woman in the eye who's, who was the but born listen, of a rape. Do you understand that? That's a 14-year-old child. If you a 14-year-old child gets raped, you say that they have to to carry that baby? I don't think two wrongs make a right. I don't think that's murder. Not, I, don't I don't think, think murder is an answer to. I don't think murder fixes a rape. What if? What are what was what was Joe Rogan's response to that? Because I think that's what it boils down to, right? Is murder doesn't <laughs> fix a rape? Yeah, right? I mean he he was arguing that it's not murder. It, he he argues that it's a very he calls it a human issue like a very messy human issue. And like there are extremes that, you know, he sees that would excuse something like abortion hmm. in a case of a rape or something. Um, so he, he's arguing that it's like, well, two wrongs don't make a right, but I don't think that's wrong. Right, okay. Right, right. So yeah. I think it's the idea that an injustice has been committed. This, you know, this, this woman's been violated. And now she, as an act of justice, she can abort the child. Right. Yeah. That's his argument. Yeah. But it's actually just two, two acts of injustice. Because what, what's, what's actually happening is um, it's not an act of justice. It's an act of revenge mm. against the rapist. Yeah. That's being taken out on the child. Um, yeah. So you're, it, I guess, in, in, in a little maybe more philosophical language, you know, two wrongs don't make a right. It's like two injustices don't make a justice. Yeah, um, exactly. But I think that's, I think that is how... People who make that argument, that the argument that Rogan is making, I think that is how they see it, though, is it's an act of justice. Right. You yeah. know, that I have been attacked. I have a right to this. Yeah. Right. And I think um, the whole abortion in the case of rape argument, I think, is really weak. because And, and Ben Shapiro has pushed back on, on this point when people bring up the, um, the rape case. It's like less than 1% of abortions are done due to rape. And so, you know, Ben Shapiro would often push back and say, okay, I'll grant you, I'll grant you that. Let's, let's support child in cases of rape. Are you, are you okay with 
all other abortions or, or can we get rid of those too? And usually um, the person will be like, no, 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 I want abortion in those cases too. It's like, well, then why are you bringing up the marginal case that's less than 1% to make a law that governs all most cases, right? And so I think we lose the lose the whole point when we bring up marginal cases. Yeah. And ultimately it does boil down to like what is happening. Is that thing in the woman a person or not? Uh, and so, you know, to, to expand it out of the political um, talk of abortion, just say, would you, in, in order for this person to attain some justice in her life, like that she's been raped and uh, violated, can I kill this person? Can I mm-hmm. kill this person? That's what it boils down to. Yeah, um, I I do think that ultimately, on a moral sense, it boils down to that question. But I feel like it dodges what Rogan is actually trying to get at that he might not even know he's trying to get at. In that, where he really wants to validate the experience of the woman, mm, yeah. you know, like he's he's moving from compassion in the sense of like, I don't care what the rules are i just want you to acknowledge that this woman is suffering yeah and so when he uses that terminology like you don't have the right to tell my daughter you could tell in the way he switches that up right at the end he's using my daughter he's trying to get you to experience a closeness of of the pain suffering with that person yeah Yeah. right Um, and then he's saying you don't have the right to impose that on to me yeah or onto her whatever um and i feel like i feel Mm. like again like the rights response, the pro-life response, it's not exclusive of acknowledging that suffering. Yeah. Um, and we can talk from that perspective. And I really, I really feel like we have to start engaging in these types of discussions, like what to do about inner cities and disenfranchised people and ab- abortion. We need to start talking in a, in a phenomenological way that shows that from the woman's perspective, this is the better choice yeah, for right. you, not for the baby. Yeah. Like, this, disregard the fact that we're debating on whether the baby's alive or not. This is a better choice for you because it's, a, it's a, in closer with participation with the reality outside yourself. Yeah. Suffering exists. This is tragic. This is awful. We're going to help you walk through this. Yeah. Right. I That's, feel like that needs yeah. to really be said. No, and I think um, there is a sense of wanting to... Uh, wanting justice now in the way that you think that it should be manifested. And that's a desire I think all of us have. Like if we, you know, were ever to encounter a 14-year-old girl who has been raped, yeah. carrying a rapist baby, it's like something in you should cry out for justice. Sure. But how yeah. does that justice look like? You know, and I was reminded, um, just going over these notes for this podcast, I was reminded of um, uh, like movies like John Wick, right? Where, where it's like this, um, I guess they would call it like these revenge stories, right? Where... You know, and I like John Wick as much as this guy. Next guy, it's you know, it's a fun movie. Shoot him up, shoot him up, and and you know, Keanu Reeves mm-hmm. kicking butt and whatever. It's fun, whatever. But you know, looking at it from a moral standpoint, like he just slaughters like dozens of people <laughs> because someone killed his dog. You know, uh, and so that's there is something in us that enjoys watching that because we're getting a sense of justice. Like he's enacting his justice mm-hmm. on uh, in the way that he sees it fit. Um, because a, an injustice has happened to him, it's like. But would we like in real life? Like, would we actually like, um, uh, you know, recommend people? Like, yes, that something bad has happened to you. You should kill. 
go out, go on a killing spree and, and right. you know pull down justice from the heavens you know mm-hmm. that's i think intuitively we know that like that's not the way to live you know revenge is not the way to live right. and the uh, the total opposite of that is christ on the cross right like the perfect innocent just man right who is uh who undergoes the worst injustice mm-hmm. does not say he does not call down fire from the heavens. He doesn't say, Father, wipe them out for this injustice. He says, Father, forgive them. Yeah. And that's like, that is the model of accepting justice on God's terms and not ours, even if we can't see it in our day. And that's that's a leap of faith. Yeah. And that's an act of faith. I think that even, even the um, response of like, well, you know, um, women who have abortions are statistically more likely to have depression and this, that, and the third. It's like, you know, as an attempt to encourage a woman to make the right choice for herself, it still kind of feels a little top down, a little like mathematical stats. Like, look at the bell curve of who's the most depressed. It's sure. like, I, I, I want to see a, a movement that is really just grappling with the inner life of a woman and having to make that choice. Um, I just, I, I know that, you know, the whole my body, my choice really just gets responded to with like, it's not your body. Yeah. It's a baby, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, but, but also you have, you do have a choice. It is your choice. And we're, the argument is that this choice is better for you. Yeah. And that, I feel like that really needs to be spoken to. Right. Cause technically speaking, it's like my body, my choice, like even aside from my body, it's like my choice. Yes. You have a choice to kill someone. Mm-hmm. You do. You have that choice. Like, is that the right choice? <laughs> yeah, right? This, this goes back to Dante and the movement of desires of like your perspective needs to shift so that you want to make the right choice. Yeah. And the right choice is not my right imposed on you. It's a, it's a reality that we're both conforming to. Yeah. And that's what, again, like I've, I've, Rogan doesn't see that because he's like a materialist or whatever he, whatever he is. Um, th- there's, he's claiming that Seth Dillon is imposing his right to tell a woman that she has to carry. Like, but yeah. that's, that has nothing to do with rights. It yeah. has so, everything to do with the reality outside of us. Yeah. Right, right. I think th- this is a, a big split in how people who are typically socially liberal uh, view morality and how people who are typically socially conservative view morality. Because I agree with you in getting more into the interior life of the woman who's e- experiencing this. Because what she needs is actually healing mm-hmm. as, you know, kind of new agey as, you know, yeah. as that is, but it's, it's actually, you know, seek justice for the wrong that was, that was done, but will aborting a child bring you healing? Yeah. It will, will it actually help your interior life? And the split happens with kind of left and right or, you know, liberal conservative is I think Joe Rogan's thinking about, the care and the harm that was done, that she was harmed. How do we care for her? And that's kind of a typically more, again, socially liberal thinking Mm -hmm. is care for victims, care for the oppressed. Whereas on the right, it's more um, sanctity-based, that there are sanctity slash kind of degradation is the opposite, is that there are some actions which no matter what are degrading to you. Mm-hmm. that this won't actually bring you the care that you think it is. Now, I think, to your point, though, we can bring them both together to care for her 
but also maintain that this is uh, a, a kind of a sanctity issue, I guess, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, yeah. I mean, I thought I've been thinking about that, too, in that, like, we need people that are socially left-leaning to, you know, get a feel for the compassion that should be had. Yeah, and mm-hmm. and to and to bring that to the table of like, look at the disenfranchised. We need we need to do something about this. They almost act as prophets. I thought of the image of um, Mary telling Jesus, "They have no wine." You know, it, but like, and then it's through Jesus that water becomes wine, and so mm-hmm. it's like in participation with the life that He reveals. Then that's how we respond to the fact that there is no wine. You know, yeah. it's like, the, like it's his truth and it's his life that we participate in. So it's like, you know, it's like somebody coming, it's like this woman has been raped. It's like, all right, now we have to align ourselves as best as we can in this tragic situation with the life of Christ to, to get through this tragedy. Not, and that, again, that's not like, a, well, here's the rules and just follow the rules. It's like, this is painful. This is hard. And we're going to walk through this. Yeah. Right, yeah. I, I think that's the the healing I was talking about of like conforming to, to the life of Christ, conforming to a different reality, mm-hmm. not a question of rights. Yep, you know my right versus your right versus her right versus you know the yeah. the, the child's right, but what will actually bring you true peace, true healing yeah. in a, an exterior reality? Right, because I think an, an abortion in 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 a case of rape, I think a lot of the assumption there is that if you allow it. Um, the entire thing will just go away, right? Like it's right. like right. no, there's still scars there that mm-hmm. you're going to carry for the rest of your life, mm-hmm. and that abortion, if it is truly immoral, meaning that it doesn't bring you fulfillment, uh, it, it is going to you're going to carry that, and just like you know, even outside of abortion, if a person wants to say my body, my choice, I'm going to amputate my arm because that's what I feel like is going to bring me fulfillment we should say no, mm-hmm. right? Like, that's not going to bring you fulfillment. And yeah, so look, yeah, yeah, that's that's my take, <laughs> so. Yeah, uh, you know, I think in some sense the idea is that the abortion will undo what happened, mm-hmm. right? right? And it'll get, and, it, and it'll remove the reminder mm-hmm. yeah. of what happened, but it's a deeper, yeah, a deeper issue and a d- deeper reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um Last point from this conversation uh, with Rogan is a little lighter. Um, they're talking about <laughs> comedy. Um, and he talks about, um, Seth Dillon talks about the kind of the moral obligation to mock the powers that be. Um, I thought it was really interesting. And I want to hear your thoughts on it. I, I also think that there's a moral obligation to mock some of these things. And I, 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 a moral this is obligation. A moral obligation. How I would so? say. The absurd has only become sacred because it hasn't been sufficiently mocked. I think we have crazy ideas, crazy ideas that comedians to some extent bear the responsibility for becoming popular because they were too afraid to mock them. They were too afraid they would get canceled. They didn't want to make fun of it. You know, like kids, kids are so impressionable. Kids don't have like, kids don't have like a theological foundation or a philosophical foundation. They can't ward off bad ideas. Like, they just absorb whatever you throw at them. But let me but stop you there because you're, you're talking stuff. about my tribe now. Yeah. The, yeah. Here's the thing about comedians. We make fun of things we think are funny. Right. So we don't have an obligation to decide that something is funny. And if you say that we have an obligation, like, who is our representative that has that obligation? They're in, hold on. They're individual yeah. artists. 
individual. Some of them are absurdists. Some of them are guys like Zach Galifianakis or yeah. like um, Mitch Hedberg that just write non sequitur jokes. Like right. they're not responsible for anything. The idea that comedians are responsible for mocking something. Well, if there is a comedian who sees something there and he wants to talk about it on stage, then he's responsible for making it funny and it's an important subject and it's something that right, you can right. mock. Just do a good job on it. Make sure it works good. That's the responsibility of the individual, but it's not like we have a. But it's okay. not like we have a committee. We're not like a government organization. No, 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 it's no, not, no. We're not like the FDA. No. We approve bad drugs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not that. We're we're a group of artists. They, but we have an obligation as comedians to be funny. Yes. We have, so when you. So Rogan's going again into the like. You don't have the right to tell <laughs> me to be funny, or to mock certain things. Um, is he wait? He's saying that comedians have. The obligation to mock certain things. Yeah, he was okay. he was talking about how like the Babylon Bee kind of uh, pushes against the left, and they kind of feel like there's moral obligation to do so because mm -hmm. it it helps um, reveal the absurdity of yeah. the, of things that are being taken in. Yeah, and that's the that's the role of satire. Yeah, is like you mock uh, you mock vice in order to sh show virtue essentially. Yeah. Right. Um, that's what satire is. Um, yeah, but. Yeah, uh, I think that, yeah, it's, it is tricky when you say like moral obligations mm -hmm. with artists, because then, you know, you, you, you start dabbling into this idea of propaganda, like what yep. are you pushing exactly? Uh, but there, I do think that there are, there are moral obligations in art. Uh, you can't just, you, you, you have, and we've talked about this before, but like there, there is an authenticity to truth that an artist has to adhere to. Uh, and once you start deviating off that path, uh, it becomes hackneyed and it becomes uh, just moral posturing and lecturing and awkward and it's not good art. Right. Um, so that dynamic between obligation and actually being an artist is a, it's tough. Yeah. But it does have to be maintained or else I, you just end up with um, senseless, modern, deconstructing, deconstructive art, I, th I think. Yeah, I think that the disconnect between them two is that like one is trying to see top down, one is trying to see bottom up. Whereas Seth Dillon is like, we have an obligation to do this. And Rogan is responding, is like, no, I just find the funny that I see funny. Mm -hmm. It's like, those, again, those things are not mutually exclusive. Right. So it's like, art is supposed to do that. Like, you're supposed to find the funny from your perspective. Like, this is the whole beauty is in the, the eye of the beholder. Beauty is the experience of truth and goodness. Yeah. And so, it's the, the, the only moral obligation, if you want to talk about it from that perspective, is that the artist should be good at his craft. Yeah. Um, and then in that is going to flow critique of higher powers, et cetera, et cetera, because that's how good art is made. Yeah. And if, and if art isn't critiqued, I mean, um, if higher powers that be aren't critiqued, it means that whoever is, should be filling that role um, is serving a different power. Yeah. Like they're not serving comedy. They're right. serving, you know, whatever, wokeness, whatever it is. Um, but that doesn't, that doesn't dissolve Rogan's point that it's like, actually, it's from what I just think is funny. Yeah. It's like, well, if you truly just went with what you saw was funny, you would also be critiquing the higher powers. Yeah. yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Um, it would, it, it, um, and it might actually fall flat on its face. It's sort of like a meme. Like that yeah. memes are funny because it's a fairly general or universal experience. If it's like, oh, I just think this is funny, 
you make a meme or you make a joke, no one may laugh. So there's clearly like something hmm. when it comes to humor that you're you're tapping into that's a little bit more than just I think it's funny. Mm-hmm. It's like well, yeah. people right think this is funny. Yes, exactly. And yeah. th- so the interesting point for me what I heard from that was uh, the absurd becoming sacred because what it highlights is that the the things that are off limits are sacred. Those are the things that you don't you don't touch. Mm-hmm. Um, and an extreme example of this is, uh, I don't know if you guys remember, 2014, 15, the Charlie Hebdo yep. shooting. Um, I think I don't think it was ISIS that was part of that. It's my no, second yeah. time mentioning ISIS. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> I swear I don't spend time Googling them. They're just... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think they took credit. I don't know. Either way. But they sent a clear message to Charlie Hebdo and said, do not make fun of the sacred. Otherwise. Yeah. And then yeah. they did. Mm-hmm. And they said, okay. You're going to pay the price. Yeah. And there's a, there's, it's, it's a fine line because, you know, you don't, you say, you kind of put the sacred away and say, don't make fun of this. But if you put that away, what else can go in the sacred box that can't be made fun Mm -hmm. of? You know, um, they also made fun of Pope Benedict and it's like, okay, so yeah, you know, it's not okay to make fun of Pope Benedict, but is it okay to make fun of Muhammad? Yeah. It's like, well, you know, maybe Mm -hmm. Muhammad goes in the box. And I, I think what, He's trying to say is that there's things in the sacred box that just do not belong there. Right. Perhaps religion can belong there. Yeah. But sure. you know, trans rights, yeah, gay activism, right, critical race theory. It's like oh, dude, take that you know, out of the box. You know, it's like are these sacred? <laughs> and yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. It, it, you you kind of you see these things and you think these might be good social movements, or I can find why you know, I can see why people find these impactful. But are these sacred? Yeah. Yeah. Beyond critique. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. You know, it's, yeah. and I think that's the thing that kind of sets people off is, mm-hmm. is this actually sacred? Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, Rogan also points that like, you know, some comedians are like have non sequitur jokes and yeah, they're just, you know, they, they do one offs like Zach Galifianakis. Um, I, I think that again, his point is that they're just doing what seems funny to them. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of where my critique of Seth Dillon is a little like, this is where the critique comes in in that, like, I feel like they're imposing a, like, um, we have this mission and purpose behind our satire. Yeah. Um, where it's like, actually you could also see it from that. You find this funny. And as a comedian, that's trying to be the truest to your art form. This is what you're putting out, but that, and that's totally legitimate and does bring about, change in the culture that is good for the culture that fits in a Christian framework, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, so from your perspective, from your bottom up view, this is what you find funny. Yeah. And this is what, this is where you fit in society. And right. this is like your calling per se, but then to like cap that on and be like, no, we have a moral obligation to do that. It's like, maybe you do because that's what you find funny. Yeah. And that's how that fits. Yeah. But the, the, the mark of it being truly funny, not just to you is in the audience's reaction too, And, mm-hmm. Uh, and so this is where the beauty in the eye of the beholder has to have a big asterisk, asterisk, asterisk next yeah. to it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, a star. A star. A star <laughs> next to it. <laughs> um, a footnote. A footnote. In, in the sense that, uh, you know, it's not just, if I find this funny, then that means it's good art. It has to, um, it has to bring out the intended emotion from the audience mm-hmm. in general. And this is what Aristotle talks about in his Poetics, that a he uses tragedy as an, as an example specifically. Um, but any work of art, 
if it doesn't bring out the intended emotion from the audience, has failed. It, it can no longer be considered a good work of art. And that might seem harsh when we think about, well, you know, any, anyone should express themselves. And, you know, if they want to write a story or, you know, draw a picture, they should be free to. So, yeah, that's, that's all well and good. But if we're going to consider it good art, it also has to bring out the intended emotion. And so even the comedian who finds certain things funny to themselves, if they're not getting the audience to la- laugh then in a certain sense, the comedian has failed, right? We can, we can say yeah. that the art has failed. Um, and so there is that dynamic between public um, reception and, uh, and the personal, uh, like what the artist finds interesting that he wants to say as well. Yeah, um, it's a fine line because you don't want to... Uh, you don't want to bow just to the people. And yeah, just you don't want to start there. Want. Like, yeah. what are people going to find funny? And yeah. then start, like, then it just doesn't come from the right place. That's, yeah, that's fair. Um, yeah, there is a interesting interplay of the comedian reading the signs of the time, current culture, where things are going, but then also putting his own unique personality into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, he has to kind of combine those two and not just, like you said, say things because people find them funny because yep. it's current, but that it's his own authentic interpretation and reading of the signs of the time. Yep. That yeah. That is a, that is a perfect segue into this last <laughs> clip I want to play for you. This is from Tim Dillon, not Seth Dillon, totally different person. Um, he talks about um, how cool kids are unwoke now and kind of, I feel like this is one of the, one of his like traits is that he is a pattern recognizer and almost a prophet in terms of the fool. Um, yeah. The archetype um, of the fool. Yeah. yeah and, the, and the things he jokes about from his perspective is, is just so interesting. I've listened to him like pre COVID pre-pandemic mm-hmm. and like he says things like you know what we need next is like some sort of virus you know like he's, he's like calling these things before they happen so yeah it's really incredible just and that's not from like i'm some prophet but just like this is what i find funny yeah. this is what i've seen the culture this is what the next turn is going to happen um so i want i want to play this clip and then uh, talk about it it's no yes all like, the cool kids now are unwoke some of them are going back to Christianity because it's the only way to be rebellious. Because, at, you know, everybody's blue-haired, non-binary, talking about piss orgies. And that's like, <laughs> it's the cover of Newsweek. So you, you have to be like a Catholic, Opus Dei, you know, like doing saying the rosary to be uh, a fucking problem now. Yeah. Like you used to be able to just dye your hair and get a tattoo and a nose ring. Now that's like, oh, what are you running for Congress? So now the other side of it, yeah. So <laughs> that's like a that's a literal meme. It was, you know that it's like you know back in the the seventies and eighties. You know, if you were a rebel, you had tattoos and mm-hmm. piercings. Yeah. And now it's like just a man with his wife and child. Countercultural. Yeah, it's counterculturally. Yeah. Just like, oh yeah, I'm just married. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's so funny. Yeah, his um. His take on that, though, is so right. Like we were talking about with Andrew Tate of like this uh, return back to hyperstructures. Um, you know, he, he was saying like people are becoming Christian again. Um, yeah. So it's like this this wave of the right is coming because of how far the left has gone. Yeah. How, how bad the coddling has become. Um, it's going to be the cool rebel thing now to be like part of some organized religion. Yeah. Um, but again, the risk of that is going to be somebody like Andrew Tate who just got yeah. kicked off of you know, Twitter all yeah. platforms. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wow. And no, yeah. wait, now I'm thinking about what I said about Jung earlier, that the counterbalance 
to mass mindedness is religion. Yeah. Yeah. So like yeah, yeah. now right. if you want to go against the state, right. uh, you have to be religious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Isn't that wild? Yeah. Well, and there's this idea too that like, you know, being cool means that you're not um, part of the norm, right? And so when the norm is just blue haired tattoo yeah, people, yeah. Uh, like you said, like pulling out a rosary or just having a family is like, it, it shows Whoa. that you, 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 it shows that you think for yourself. Yeah. Right. 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 And well, that's attractive. That's right. like, right. that's cool. It's mm-hmm. like when you think for yourself, you know? Yeah. Right. And then, well, there's, there was uh, that Atlantic article, I think that came out after, maybe after this clip from uh, Tim Dillon, but it's about uh, the, ex- um, the rosary is an ex- uh, extremist symbol. Oh, yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. So it's yeah. like, well, it kind of actually validates his point. Yeah. Yeah. Is that to be, you know, you know, going against the grain countercultural is to pray the rosary. You know? yeah. Right. Like, yeah. Yes. And right. This, and this yeah, is the point exactly. about the, how this ties back to the comedy thing is that um, he wasn't sitting there being like, what do people think are funny? Mm-hmm. Or even thinking about like, what's the next thing that's going to happen in the culture? Like he just looked at what he saw was funny. Yeah. And this is like what he's talking about. And right. he's ranting. Um, yeah. And so that's, I feel like that's the best form of comedy for him. Yeah. And that's, that's how you get the, the best version of Tim Dillon. It's yeah. him doing that from his perspective but it's in in an observation of reality right and i mean like you know this is not to say that um this gives validity to christianity uh you know in the sense that like well it's cool now i mean you know christianity uh, and its validity and it's you know whether it's true good and beautiful um transcends what the culture deems cool and uncool of course yeah. um but it's just funny to see the culture ebbing and flowing to where now it's in and then you know maybe 50 years from now it won't be in and then it'll be in again you know and you know you look at even further back like when you know during the medieval times like everyone was catholic and the culture was catholic um you know the, the morality and the truth of catholicism or christianity has always uh been consistent um it's just now the culture is just so unsure of itself it's not right. able to find um solid ground for its philosophical worldview that you know Things like Christianity that has stood for two thousand years is just coming now into play because that's what yep. you know the culture is going so far the other way. Yep. So that's right. the cycle. I yeah. do think um, uh, phenomenons like Andrew Tate are um, another uh, another possible product of a overbearing mother. Let's say you know you because I think if you just kind of think of it archetypally, it's like you could have the man child that never leaves or you could have the rebellious son. Yeah. That's like, mom, stop mm-hmm. holding me back. Stop, you know, you're cutting my own meat for me. <laughs> you know, yeah, like, yeah. like I can, I can do all this on my own mm-hmm. and you get a, a, an arise of hyper masculinity of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, workout culture, the, the baths, the ice baths, you know, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. you know, all, all the guys that I, I follow <laughs> on Instagram to help me like work out. It's all like, now they're all into the ice baths, Yeah, you know, like training your body, being hard on your body, mm-hmm. And I think that's just because of the rise of safetyism, mm-hmm. uh, partly. Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. You know, partly. Uh, yeah. I mean, even it, even on the natural sense of like, uh, aside from the the ideology of safe, safetyism, technology has progressed as such so that now we have to like be intentional about right. the pressure we put on our own bodies. Yeah, right. right. It's all the same pattern. Right. Right. Yeah, well, yeah. It's um the problem of progress. That, you know that Jonathan Hay talks about is where the social progression and Te- technological progression is all good things you know it's it's good that we're living longer and uh have healthier lives and such like that yeah, perhaps debatably <laughs> <laughs> um but 
this comes with its own consequences. You know, Thomas mm-hmm. Sowell, only trade-offs. Yep. You know, it's like now there's other other trade-offs. But I do think that the the rise of hypermasculinity and or or Andrew Andrew Tateism mm-hmm. um, <laughs> is is a another possible outgrowth of an overbearing federal you know sure. yeah. mama government yep. again or coddling at the local level. Yep, definitely, it's coming. So. That is the end of my clips. Um, good place to stop. Really um, kind of shotgun all over the place, but I feel like we had a really good discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, related.com forward slash support. Um, if you feel it in your heart to pay $5 a month, um, you will be, uh, you'll have access to a monthly Q&A where you guys can ask questions. Um, basically, related.com forward slash AMA to ask the questions. Um, I'm Matt Hylam on all social media. Lee is Coach Lieb. Uh, Father John is MIA. Ma- MIA. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, we'll just keep rephrasing what how invisible you are. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right, good place to stop.